0: Hello, and welcome to the Hidden Gnome Podcast. Before we go any deeper, I thought I'd take a moment to let you know where we're heading. Today, we dive into one of the stories that Will White sent to his mailing list subscribers at some point in the last few years. All of these short stories are tucked away inside one or another of his worlds. Maybe Cradle, possibly Elder Empire, but probably Traveler's Gate. If you have never heard of those worlds before, then you do not have the training to extract full meaning from this journey. You may continue if you wish, but you may not reach true enlightenment. You'll know you were fully prepared for the story if we emerge from this podcast and you suddenly begin levitating and or glowing. Now, tighten the straps on your pack and raise your torch high, because we're delving into places unknown. Don't worry, most of you will probably make it out alive. Unsolved Cases of the Black Watch. To the head of the Witnesses Guild, I confess that I have made a mistake. When I wrote to you requesting permission to pursue a personal project, I dismissed your warnings. I knew the Black Watch were surrounded by bile and superstition, but surely that only made them more desirable as subjects of study. Entirely fictionalized stories of the Black Watch exploits, usually with the Guild as the villains, are available for five bits at any bookseller in the empire. There are, of course, many works that tell the truth of the Black Watch. But these accounts are old and often vague. I was determined to write the tales of a modern watchman, to share the ghosts that haunt a hunter of elders. To that end, I invited retired watchman Damus Aldrin to join me at a respectable tea house off Candle Bay. I should have waited for your explicit permission, but we are always given a degree of autonomy, and I had my silent one with me for protection. I had a publisher ready, even eager, to pursue the project, and I could already envision my name in gold leaf on the spine. I am proud of my work as a chronicler, you understand, but my writing is suited only to be locked away in imperial vaults for processing, not displayed proudly on a shelf in a drawing room. Well, rest assured that my dream is dead. If I chronicle nothing more than reports on economics and taxation for the rest of my days, I will consider it a career well spent. I have attached my notes to this letter, followed by a little postscript of explanation. This is the essence of the interview with Watchman Aldrin, including my partial attempt to polish it for presentation. I apologize for this bare-bones recollection, but I do not have the poise to examine this text any further. I have already sacrificed many nights of sleep to these memories, and I have no wish to lose any more than I must. Needless to say, I have broken my contract with the publisher, and I exert no claims over this text, nor over the candles in which the memories are sealed. Do with them what you will. I should have listened. Chronicler, Khan Summerwhite. Silent one, Hector Summerwhite. Watchman Damus Aldrin is a grizzled man who looks like he would be more at home in a forest than here in the capital. His beard and hair are wild and uncombed, mostly gray, his hat worn and frayed at the brim. Though he hasn't worn his trademark black watch coat since he retired 11 years ago, he still elects to wear black. He seems relaxed and controlled, contrary to the rumors I've heard about many retired watchmen. This is a great relief to my silent one, who had spent the first few breaths of our meeting gripping a hidden pistol. Note to self, include more details of our meeting. What did the watchman order? What does that suggest about him? This could be the entire opening chapter. After our first cups and half an hour of pleasantries, I make my way to the purpose of this interview. I take a pen in my right hand and a cylinder of wax in my left. As a chronicler, I can preserve memories perfectly in these alchemical candles, burning them later for absolutely accurate recall. But this method stores the facts of the matter, not my thoughts or impressions. Only my pen can do that. What are the cases that haunt you, if you'll pardon the expression, I ask him. Tell me about the cases you couldn't solve. The Blackwatch are notoriously reluctant to discuss cases they've solved, because they may reveal classified details about the workings of the Great Elders. But the unsolved cases, the disappearances, or strange murders, those should be enough to whet the public appetite. Note to self, too humble. This is, after all, my solution to a significant problem, and it's the thesis of the entire book. Watchman Aldrin seems eager enough to share. He does not go stone-faced and cold, as I had half expected, but rather leans back in his chair. He shoots a glance to one side, as though looking for hidden listeners. Then he begins to speak, and even my silent one is enraptured by his tales. Note to self, each tale should be one chapter. Fluff with detail about the area, reader investigation, public crime reports, background on the families, etc. Note to the guild heads. What follows is almost entirely in the subject's own words. I could not bring myself to come back and edit much afterward. Unsolved cases, he begins, letting out the words on a heavy breath. I can't say that too many of our cases were what you'd call solved. Nature of the job is you have to be satisfied with half answers. You'll never understand a fraction of what you see out there. First thing that comes to mind, there was this missing child case. Not a year into our career... Story is, a brother and sister were playing at the base of a tree just behind their house. The boy climbs up to the top, looking out over the forest. There's something wrong with the trees, he said, and pointed to the forest. Sister swore he looked terrified, but he clung to the tree and stared like he was seeing the most fascinating show of his life. She climbs up to join him, and when she reaches the top of the tree, she's alone. He's gone. No way he could have climbed down past her, she swears. Her parents are within shouting distance, so she calls them over to see what happened. They can't find a trace of their son, so they call in a friend with some tracking dogs. Later I saw the dogs myself, a couple of monsters they were. Must have had some chimera blood, because they came up past your waist and could smell moonlight on stone from a mile away. The dogs won't go near the tree, couldn't even drag them closer. One of them broke a leash. So they hire the local reader, who puts one hand on the tree and passes out. When he comes to, he's lost time, can't remember the last day. My partner and I caught word of it the next day, though it took us a couple to get there. We're never deployed alone, like the witnesses, I guess, though we're both expected to do our share of the fighting. We examined the site ourselves, found nothing. Readers are short in the guild, so we have some tools that react to elder intent. Examine the tree myself, got nothing, just a tree. Chopped it into firewood and burned it, just in case, but nothing strange about it. We stayed three days, but eventually were called away, never found the boy. Another time, we were called out to this lovely little hamlet, far as you can get from the Aeon. A woman had been lynched for elder worship just after their worst harvest ever. Called us in to cleanse their corpse of the elder blight. And of course, we had to check on it in case there was something burrowing in the soil. Saw no blight on their crops, supernatural or otherwise. Just a bad year. Had no reason to believe the dead woman worshipped any elders at all. Most of her belongings had been torched by angry townsfolk, but nothing left had any ties to the sleepless, No elder intent my tools could pick up, not even any tastes and practices beyond the ordinary. But then, I once witnessed a Luminium Pilgrim burst into a horror with three heads and six waving tentacles that bled shadows. A touch of the Great Elders isn't always obvious. Maybe this poor woman was a victim of small-town superstition, and maybe the folks of the Hamlet had saved themselves from annihilation. We couldn't tell. But... As my partner and I prepared to leave, we were stopped by a smiling young woman with a tray strapped to her waist, like those walking salesmen you see in the capital all the time. She asked me and my partner if the three of us would like to sample a bag of her dried roasted mushrooms. Now, first thing you have to understand is nobody walks up to a couple of watchmen. They see us, they go the other direction. Especially in small towns, and especially when they think they've had some elder activity any time in the last year. This is the first person to smile at us in days, so we're inclined to like her. We thought we'd heard her wrong, but then she holds out three bags. Now, this is the sort of thing we're trained to watch for. Counting three people in a room when you know for certain there are only two, that sort of thing. And normally it doesn't leap out and bite us like this. We've trained for it, though, so we become a lot friendlier to keep from scaring her off. Overpaid her for the mushrooms, asked her questions about herself, her home, or work. Eventually, we would have eased into asking her to describe the third man she saw, or maybe get her to sketch him for us. But she started shooting glances at the empty space between me and my partner. Every time she did, she became more and more disturbed, taking small steps away from us. Finally, she asked him to stop making those faces. What's wrong with him, she asked. How do his eyes bend that way? That stuck in my head especially. How do his eyes bend that way? Those were her words exactly. Finally, she screamed at us to get away from her and ran, spilling her mushrooms all over the ground. We stayed as long as we could after that, followed up with her afterwards, but she wouldn't see us. No one would feed us either, not after her panic, so eventually we had to pack up and leave. Another team came a month later in civilian clothes, asking her about the watchman with the strange eyes, but she hadn't seen him since. She was no reader, so she wasn't picking up on echoes from the past, and she tested negative for lingering elder influence. She'd caught a glimpse of something that was visible, but hidden from us. Whatever she saw, it left with us. At this point in the watchman's recollections, my silent one tapped me on the shoulder, signaling that something was wrong. I turned to him, but he canceled the signal instantly. Hector is my brother, and I've never known him to take flights of fancy. But he insisted, through gestures, that he had been mistaken. I turned back to my subject's tales. Not too many years ago, we were called to examine a navigator wreck in a shallow Aeon. Normally, navigator wrecks can't be salvaged since they're in the dead center of the Aeon Sea. They're firmly in Kelorak's hands as soon as they go down past the waves. But this isn't the deep Aeon. We're within sight of the shore, and there are more fishing vessels than seagulls. It's clear enough that on a bright day you could see the wreck from the surface. Navigators don't like calling us in, but they know better than anyone not to trifle with the sea. My partner and I were brought on from the very beginning, and you can tell from the first glimpse of the wreck that there's something strange going on. The ship is almost totally intact, and it's just sitting on the sand like it was built there. There's one big hole in the deck facing the sky, but no way a ship could sink from a wound like that. It wouldn't let in water unless the ship was already under. Even stranger, the lines are still tied, and the sails are still up. Shouldn't have to tell you why that's impossible, but there they were, sheets drifting in the current like in a gentle wind. Not a single tear in the sheets. That's strange on its own, but you expect weird in the Aeon Sea. We all had a good look, the navigator crew joked about it, and then we prepared the divers. There were three pairs of divers, each recruited from the navigator's guild, all of them with an awakened diver's helmet that must have cost a fortune. It kept them breathing down there longer than you'd think possible, though I don't know if it held a bunch of air or filtered their breath. I'm not a reader. My partner and I kept watch while the rest of the navigator crew kept their muskets close to hand. They didn't expect anything deadly, not this shallow, but you never knew. And something had sunk this ship. First team of divers surfaced early, dumping handfuls of brittle shells onto the deck. Each shell was covered in words, letters, but in some language none of us could figure out. Like it was almost imperial, but nothing was in the right order to make sense. All jumbled up. We handed them over to your guild for decoding, actually, but you never got back to us. Second team brought back splinters from the hole in the deck. They're made of wood, but they look melted. The ends were smooth, I felt to myself. These splinters covered the rest of the deck, all around the hole. I'm sure you can imagine how loose objects blow around underwater, so it's not certain, but it looked to the navigators like whatever had made that hole came from inside of the hold. That made them all nervous. You never know what sort of cargo a navigator might be carrying, not even this close to shore. The third team came up white-faced and shaking. One of them had sprayed his breakfast all over the inside of his helmet, and it took them a few minutes with a mug of alchemical wine to calm down. The third team had followed the second, but instead of looking at the hole itself, they'd gone inside the ship. They told us there was another hole inside the ship, melted into a big cabin. The crew was sitting around a big table, still sitting there. Their flesh was blue and swollen, which fit bodies that had stayed underwater for days, But not a single creature had touched them. Not a bite was missing from their skin, and none of them had a wound. One of the divers was a ship's doctor, and he swore that the sailors must have drowned. They must have. But they were drifting over their seats, as though they hadn't even risen when their ship started to sink. Some still clutched forks in tight grips, others had napkins tucked into their shirts. And all of them, to a man, had broad grins stuck on their faces. Like masks, the divers said, as though something had made them smile so hard, their faces stuck that way. The whole crew was shaken, as you could guess, and my partner and I made some guesses about what sort of elder spawn could have done it. We each had our own theories, but they were all proven wrong when the fourth team reported in. They didn't find anything strange. They came up with samples of something clinging to the hull, which ended up just being barnacles but my partner had to wrestle one of the navigator marksmen down so he didn't shoot them on the spot. For we had never sent a fourth team. No one on board had seen this pair of men before in their lives. The divers were stunned at our reactions, insisting that they had been part of the crew for years. They knew the names of the other sailors' wives, where the ship had last made port, even remembered what we all had for dinner the night before. That didn't help their case. None of us could recall them, and neither of their names were on the navigator vessel's registration logs. We locked them in the cabin, and either me or my partner stayed on guard at all times. Some elderspawn can disguise themselves, though they don't usually do such a thorough job as to steal memories. We still scavenged what we could from the downed ship, for the navigators had to justify the expense of the mission somehow, and they came away with a few pieces of valuable Vandenian antique pottery. It quite satisfied the captain. But even when we returned to the capital, that fourth team refused to vanish. We brought them back to the Black Watch chapter house for months of examination, but every test suggested they were ordinary people. One of them got a job as a cook in Axis, I've heard. The other killed herself when she returned to what she thought was her house, only to find the man she remembered as her husband had six children with another woman. He'd never married before, and never heard her name. Upon learning that, she purchased one ticket to tour a Clock Tower. Upon reaching the top, she took the quick way down. The watchman shared half a dozen more stories with us, though I found these to be the highlights. I had intended to transcribe each one along with my commentary, though the memories remain in my candle if you wish to examine them. For me, I have not the nerve. Not because the stories so disturbed me. In fact, I found them fascinating, and as the watchman thanked me for the tea and walked out, I became determined to interview others of his guild. If they each had tales of a similar caliber, then I was looking at not one book, but a series, and one likely to make my own small mark on popular literature. That was to be the height of my enthusiasm. For no sooner had Watchman Aldrin cleared the door of the tea house, then my silent one bent down to whisper in my ear. I don't tell you this to reprimand him for his public conduct, but rather to impress upon you how dire the situation was. My brother, in all the years we have worked together, has never broached his oath where others may hear. He whispered to me, and then he pointed to the watchman's side of the table. The teahouse attendant had yet to clear our dishes, and at Damas Aldrin's place we saw what we expected to see a small tray of biscuit crumbs, and an empty teacup. What we did not expect was the second set, in front of the seat next to him. I've reviewed my notes and my candle, pulling apart every word, examining all the times Aldrin glanced to the side, or paused as though to gather his thoughts, or to let someone else chime in for a moment. I'm forced to conclude that I interviewed not one watchman today, but a pair of them. And yet even when I burn my candle, releasing memories perfectly preserved in wax, I can see only one. Congratulations, you've survived the Hidden Gnome podcast. Today's story was Unsolved Cases of the Black Watch by Will White, read by Travis Baldry. The next episode will be available when the second moon stops hiding behind the first moon, which ought to happen in roughly seven days. Until that time, remember, Your dreams are just your future self trying to warn you.